All right, good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, if we don't know each other, so glad you're here. Invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. I want to follow up on something that Stephanie was talking about there. I am really, really excited about this upcoming weekend. Greg and Nora Allison are going to be with us. Greg, as you heard, is the professor of systematic theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville. Uh, Nora has been the women's ministry director at Sojourn Church in Louisville for years and years and years. They're going to be in town for about four days. They're going to be doing different events at our um, congregations. They're going to be meeting with elders and pastors and, and women's ministry leaders. And they're going to be here on Saturday morning, 9 a.m. And we've asked Greg to teach on the topic, the book of Romans and Roman Catholicism. You may say, well, Pastor Paul, why, why, did we, why did we go there? Why that particular topic? Why that particular issue? Why, why those things right now? Well, you know, being here um, over these um, last 25 years, ministering and serving you, I know that many of you are from Roman Catholic backgrounds. Many of you um, have family members um, that are still part of the Roman Catholic Church. And you kind of look at people's stories and you, and you wrestle through, what, what do I... What do I do with this? How am I to think about it? How am I to engage and love and move forward with the gospel um, to those um, in my life who, who sort of have this background? But, you know, before we can enter faithfully into people's stories, we have to faithfully enter into Scripture. We have to have clarity about what the Bible teaches about these very important topics of how we are made right with God and the gospel. This has been Paul's chief concern has it not been in the book of Romans. And so I really encourage you to come out um, 9 a.m. this coming Saturday. Please sign up online so we can plan for food. Please sign up for childcare. Guys, this is a, a, an amazing opportunity we have as a church family to grow theologically, to exercise our, our biblical muscles, so to speak, and to really test out from the word of God to better understand why we believe what we believe to bring biblical clarity and definition um, to these issues so that we can faithfully love those um, who are, are part of our lives. So anyway, we'd love you to come out Saturday, but of course this morning we're in Romans chapter 7. Now you know us pastors are prone to hyperbole, and so here's a little bit of it right here. Ready? Romans 7, and I, this isn't actually hyperbole, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear, it's pretty true. It's one of the most controversial chapters in all of the scriptures. It's, it's hotly debated among theologians. Tomes, volumes of ink have been spilled on Romans chapter 7, and for good reason. Because in it, Paul gives us an autobiographical snapshot of his inner life, of his struggle of his, of his sin, of how he wrestles with the law of God and apply it to his heart and life. And, and we're going to be camping out here over the next couple of weeks. And to set the stage for really getting into the depths of Paul's struggle and understanding what it means for us, Paul, in these first six verses of chapter 7, is kind of as a preliminary, is going to introduce us to three different kinds of messages to help us understand how we are to relate to the Word of God. So three different kinds of marriages. I thought about entitling this Paul the Polygamist, but that didn't seem to sell um, with the elders. So we're going with the tell of three marriages. So I'm going to invite you to stand, if you can, and we're going to read the first six verses of Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers... 
for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to come to you as your people and confess we are sinful, we struggle, but Lord, the deepest part of our hearts, if we know you, is to love you, to serve you, to follow you, to be obedient to you. And Lord, that's, that's our heart's desire this morning. And so we're asking, Lord, that you would lift the filters off of our eyes. If, if there are areas in our life where we have had blind spots, ways that, that we have been attempting to walk out the Christian life in our flesh, when instead you are calling us to walk by your spirit, Lord, show us those areas. Lord, we are your servants. We are listening. Lord, please speak to us now. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Here are the three marriages we're going to look at. These are obviously the three points of our sermon. And so first, we're going to talk about marriage to a spouse. Secondly, marriage to sin, which sounds like a lot of fun, right? And then thirdly, marriage to a savior. So let's talk about marriage to a spouse first. Look at verse 1. Paul lays it out very clearly for us. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Now, as he's saying that, he's recognizing that there are certainly Christians, obviously, in this church, and they are very familiar with God's law, the Old Testament. Remember, there was no New Testament at this point in time for the early Christian church. Their scriptures were the Old Testament and whatever the apostles were teaching them about the Old Testament and about Jesus. And so Paul says, you know the law, but he's even speaking beyond that. You see, the Christians in the church in Rome were living under the law, and we're talking about the Roman law. It was this all-encompassing, overarching reality that governed every aspect of their lives, and no one had to remind them that they were living under the law. And so Paul, rolling off that sort of basic presupposition, says to them, he lays out a self-evident claim, and this is an axiom. It's a principle Paul lays out. It doesn't need to be proved. It doesn't need to be footnoted. It doesn't need to be on your works-cited page in your bibliography. It's very clear, Christian and non-Christian alike, that this is true. And here is, here is his axiom. Let's look back at the text. Paul says, the law is binding on a person only as long 
as he lives. Everyone gets that, right? You don't have to be a believer. Um, you don't have to have grown up in church your whole life to know that once you die, the law no longer binds you. It no longer applies to you. Case in point, for those of you who know me know I'm a big fan of the Broadway musical Hamilton. Should be required listening for all teenagers, right? I believe, and parents, you'll get this, it's the modern day version of the old schoolhouse rock videos. Remember those, okay? I'm just a bill, just only a bill. Well, one of my favorite scenes in Hamilton, there is a debate between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. And of course, it's done in the form of a rap. Of course it is. And the, and the issue on the table is, should the United States honor the treaty made with the King of France, King Louis, who is now dead? And Lin-Manuel Miranda, to make his point, he's playing Hamilton, and he astutely remarks, and there's a little bit of rhyme to this, so just go with it. I'm not gonna actually rap it, but if I did, it would be awesome. But let me just say, okay, here we go. It says, we've signed a treaty with a king whose head is now in a basket. Would you like to take it out and ask it? Oh, should we honor our treaty, King Louis's head? Uh, do whatever you want. I'm super dead, right? That's the rhyme, okay? And it sounds much better when you wear Revolutionary War attire, okay? And I can also do that on demand. Now, we laugh. It's self-evident, right? The only... The only, you know, the law only applies to those who are alive. In other words, you don't go through the cemetery issuing citations or indictments. The librarian is not going to show up at your funeral and demand you pay the, the fine on the book that you turned in late, except maybe the Northeast Branch Library. Now, let me tell you, don't go in there owing money, all right? That is a big deal. You've been warned. And Paul says the same thing is true when it got regards marriage. Okay, look at verse two. This is, the, this is the spousal marriage he talks to us about. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, we all understand it was probably part of your vows. It comes from this text, by the way, till what? Death do us part. Marriage, by definition, was designed by God to be a life and death bond, a covenant made, and that the only thing that abolishes the marriage lawfully in God's eyes if one spouse dies. And if one spouse dies, then the other spouse is free to remarry. Again, this is self-evident, right? Self-evident among Christians. It's self-evident among the world, and understand, it was even understood by the blasted Pharisees in the New Testament, right? Remember the Sadducees came and they questioned Jesus about this hypothetical woman. Let's call her the Black Widow, remember? She had seven husbands and all of her husbands mysteriously died. And they asked him, they thought they were smart. Oh, Jesus, in heaven, who's going to be married to her? And you can just tell Jesus just like, look at these guys. Just look, look, look at them. Like, you've got it all wrong, right? No, no one's married in heaven but what he didn't dispute was the fact that remarriage is lawful when your spouse passes away. Now, let me just issue a disclaimer here. And this is not Paul's main point, but I need to say it because it, it brings to the surface a lot of issues or a lot of thoughts about divorce and remarriage. Paul is not trying to lay out a comprehensive systematic theology of when it's okay to divorce and when it's not, or when it's okay to remarry and when it's not. Some have taken this passage and interpreted it 
wrongly, I believe, to say that all remarriage, except in the case of the death of a spouse, is unlawful. That, 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 that if you're divorced, you should remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse and that it's not lawful to be remarried until your spouse passes away. I, I don't agree with that. Let me say a couple of things about this. First of all, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe, gives very clear stipulations about biblical divorces and biblical remarriages. Jesus, in his teaching on divorce, makes concession for the fact that there are times where there are biblical reasons for divorce, and remarriage was always permissible under Jewish law. So, so no, don't get me wrong. There are, there are such a thing as unbiblical divorces and unbiblical remarriages, but I believe before the Lord there are biblical reasons for divorce, and there can be biblical reasons for remarriage. I just don't think that's what Paul's point here is. And by the way, if that sort of piqued your interest and you would love for me to say more on that, that's an open invitation, right, to listen to the pastoral devotionals this coming week. Right, we're going to dive into this issue. I'm going to try to unpack that in these little devotionals we do at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday that you can access through our Facebook page. That's not Paul's point, though. Here is Paul's point. He's just using it as a very obvious illustration. Now listen to this. Here's, here, here is his thesis. Just as we are freed from marital law by a spousal death, we are freed from the demands of God's law by a spiritual death. And let me repeat that because it's really important. Just as we are freed from the demands, uh, just as we are freed from marital law by a spousal death, we are freed from the demands of God's law by a spiritual death. Now, the question is, who is it that has to die? Who is it in the illustration? Who, who is the spouse that passes away? Now, it's interesting, as we unpack this passage, here's what we're going to see. It's not the law that has to die. You know who has to die? You and me. We are the ones that have to die. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. Listen to what Paul says in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Now, we've heard this before, this, this idea that the believer must die in Christ. We, we read it back in Romans 6. Let me read that for us. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, there's two deaths that Paul speaks of there. There's the first, the death of Christ under the law in order to secure our freedom from the law. You see, Jesus, as the perfect second Adam, did what we had no hope of doing, and that was perfectly obeying the law. And what Paul is saying is that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, 
You are dead to the law. Now, what we want to understand, right, is what does that mean? What does that mean, Pastor Paul, that I'm, that I'm dead to the law? Does that, that mean I can sin that grace may abound? Does it mean I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card? Does it, does it mean that the law is not important or that does it serve a vital function in my life? And let me just say here, the issue is not the law. The issue is how we use the law, what we do with the law what we look to the law to do or to not do. And that's Paul's next concern. So let's go to our second point here. Let's talk about this second marriage, the marriage to sin. Now, we preached through the book of Genesis um, a couple of years ago. And let me just sort of rehearse one of the things that we talked about then. When we talk about our marriage to sin, what we are referring to is the relationship to the law, the law of God, that all of us are born into. Now, Adam and Eve were our forebearers. They were the first, they were the first to go, right? They were the first to have to go off the high dive, so to speak, or go down the slide. And God told them, Adam and Eve, if you obey, you live. If you disobey, you die. That was the arrangement. That was the covenant. We call this the covenant of works. In other words, God said, as long as you walk in obedience to my law, to my revealed will, what I've told you, you will flourish, you'll have shalom, you'll have peace. But if you walk away from me, if you sin, then most surely you will experience death in your relationships, death in the workplace, death in the environment, death in the world, but, but, but most tragically, spiritual death. And we know because going back to Romans 5, that when Adam and Eve failed the covenant of works, we failed right along with them. We were ushered into that lineage, and we were all born under the curse of the law. Now, understand something. Do you realize that that principle of the covenant of works is still operative even today? That everyone in the history of planet Earth who has been born, still lives under that decree. If you obey, you live. If you disobey, you die. Here's a couple of scripture passages to, to back that up. Romans 2. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Deuteronomy 20, 27, 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins shall die. And then Matthew 5, 20, this is a misunderstood verse. Jesus is not saying this tongue in cheek. He, he means this literally. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, doesn't meet it, exceeds it, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, all of us, just like Adam and Eve, were born needing to keep the law or else perish in our sins. We were born married to the law. We were born under its curse, and of course, we all understand that this presents a massive problem. Look back at the text. Paul says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, 
were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now, it's interesting, anytime there is a political or social problem, oftentimes our cultural instinct is we just need to make a law to address that. We just need to make a law. But what Paul reminds us is that all the law does, apart from Christ, is just remind us of how guilty we really are. All the law does is simply arouse us, and that that Greek word is to provoke. In other words, the more law, the more you and I realize just how hopelessly at loss we are to obey it and to fulfill it. Some of you may have noticed all the construction going on up and down Thomasville Road, and they've been pouring concrete to repair the sidewalks. Now, as I share this with you, I'm realizing I'm sharing part of my inner world, and that might bring me under judgment, but let me just say this. I see them pouring the sidewalk, and my first thought is, I wonder if I should go over there and write my name in the sidewalk. Does anybody else have this inclination, or is it just just me? Probably, Probably just me, but I don't. It's just a little bird flies over my head, as Luther said. I just distract it. But now imagine for a second what would happen if you put a big neon sign out by that sidewalk, one of those flashing construction signs that says, absolutely under no circumstance are you to write your name in the cement of this sidewalk. What do you think would happen? We know what would happen. Some of you would do it. Some of you would just be like, I just can't resist. I have to, I have to stick, my, stick my finger in there, Right? Because that's the nature of the law. The more law, the more it inflames our sin. And the more it inflames our sin, the more it condemns us. And the more it condemns us, the more we realize, I can't follow the law. I can't obey the law. I fall miserably short of obeying the law. Which brings us back to this point. The reason we have to die and not the law, is that there's nothing wrong with the law. The reason we have to die is there's something wrong with us, in our hearts, in our souls. It is our sinful nature and inclinations. Listen to the way Paul talks about this in Galatians 2. He says, for through the law, I died to the law, now listen, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, what's the key, what's the key takeaway from this point? And here it is. When Paul talks about dying to the law, and we're going to unpack this in a little more detail in a second, He's not saying it's not important any longer to be obedient to God. He's not saying that it's not important to bear fruit for God. Remember, the problem is not with the law. When Paul says we die to the law, he means we no longer look to the law for it to do something for us it was never intended to do. Christian, the law was never meant in your sinfulness to save you. It's impossible. And when you think about all the places in your life this season where you might have experienced some sort of crushing defeat or major letdown 
or a broken dream, and whether it's in a relationship or within a marriage or with a child or a job or a career or a set of investments, and when you are inordinately crushed by, by that, it's an indication that you have been looking to the law for it to do something it was never intended to do, and that is to save you. And that is to give you an identity. That is to, that it's to, that it's meant to give you a purpose, that it's meant to give you a standing before God. So when Paul says, just to reiterate the point, we have died to the law through Christ, what he means is you no longer have to struggle in the flesh in order to attempt to earn enough works to please God. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. It is a crushing weight to live under. And Paul says, when you attempt to live under it, when you attempt to organize your life apart from the grace of God, the law will absolutely obliterate you. Paul says, you're, you're, you're free from the tyranny of the law. You're free from the condemnation of the law. And I just have to ask you before we leave this point, where in your life do you need to be reminded of that? Where in your life do you just feel like, I'm failing, Pastor Paul? Where in your life do you just feel like, I, I've just blown it? I've, I've, I, have, I have not met my standards. I have not achieved my goals. I have disappointed the people who are closest to me. Where is it that you have come face to face with your own failure? And if that crushes you, that's probably an indication that you're looking to the law for it to do something it wasn't intended to do. But Paul says, in Christ, that's done away with. The law is no longer your master. The law is no longer your spouse. You have a new spouse, and that's gonna be our last point. Let's look at this real quickly. Marriage to a savior. I love this verse, verse six. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Now, that word belong means to be kept, to be set apart. It can actually mean to be married. And what Paul is referring to here is that you have been put to death and the law is no longer your spouse, but now Jesus is your spouse. Jesus is your husband because he did for you what you could not do for yourself. He perfectly obeyed the law. He died and bore the penalty of the law for us so that we are no longer in a covenant relationship with works. If you know Jesus Christ, you are in a covenant relationship with Jesus. And the issue is not that we no longer have a relationship to the law. Please hear this. It's the kind of relationship we now have. See, instead of looking to the law to justify us, to make us right with God, look at verse 4. Paul says, we may bear fruit for God. That word for God means unto God. And what Paul is pointing us to here, and this, is, and this mathematical equation make, is, is, 
is of eternal importance, so please hear this. Our obedience does not gain us righteousness before God. Our obedience reflects a grateful heart to God. Our obedience is an evidence of our salvation in God. Our obedience is evidence of a changed heart before God. Our obedience is a testimony to God's grace. Guys, God's law, God's word is wonderful. The question is, what kind of relationship do you have with it? Well, let's listen to these verses. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is the law. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And then Romans 7, we're going to get to this next week. So the law is what? Holy. And the commandment is holy and righteousness uh, is holy and righteous and good. See, dying to the law doesn't mean, church, that we no longer live according to the law. It just changes the reason why we obey the law. And it changes how we obey the law. You see, Paul says obedience is a product, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as we come deep into communion with him. As we come to know our new husband, as we come to to know the intimacy of that communion through the word and prayer, the fruit of that communion is righteousness, holiness, and obedience. Look at verse six. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Now listen so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Because one of the things I think that our culture is walking out in this day and age is the natural result of what happens when we seek to impose law upon one another apart from grace. If you want to know why toleration culturally speaking, is sort of out the window. If you want to know why, I mean, not just in the culture at large, but in the Christian world, and dare I even say, if you venture forth into Christian Twitter, just take one little foot into that and then get right back out, right? Because it is full of toxicity and conflict and canceling one another. Why does this happen? See, this happens when we attempt to Make the law do something it was never meant to do. See, the law is a harsh taskmaster, is it not? Apart from the gospel of the grace of Jesus. See, so much of the division and confusion of what we see happening in the evangelical church is what happens when moral imperatives in law are stripped of their con- of, out of the context of the gospel. You know, it used to be if you apologized for your sins culturally, right, our society would be very quick to forgive you. Now, if you confess your sins publicly, that is like blood in the water for sharks, is it not? See, we have lost our capacity for mercy and grace and love. Instead, we have moral outrage towards those who may not have the same degree of passion for something as we do. How does this happen? 
church. How does this happen? This happens when we wrench the law out of the context of the gospel of grace. See, the law, which is good, please hear this, cannot be rightly exercised and practiced as a believer apart from your marriage to Christ. See, you will hurt people with the law apart from the gospel. Parents, you will crush your kids with the law if you hold it up to your kids as the way that they are to please you and stay in relationship with you. You will absolutely crush them. Spouses, if the love and approval you have for your spouse is contingent upon their performance, you will absolutely crush your spouse. You will absolutely crush your own soul. Your marriage will be a miserable place if it's all about the law apart from the gospel of grace. You see, what Paul is going to remind us as we unpack Romans 7 It's possible to be married to Christ, but to still act and behave and think as if we are married to the law. Let me just tell you guys how I've just been trying to apply this passage personally for myself this week. Now, those of you who know me know that I'm just a little, just a tad bit, an itty bitty bit OCD. And by itty bitty bit, I mean like a whole lot, right? I have, a, I have a very sensitive conscience. Things easily bother me. Things easily invoke a sense of, of guilt. Now, don't use this to your leverage and advantage, but you get what I'm saying. My conscience is easily disturbed. And that's not always a bad thing, by the way. Not always a bad thing. But where it can be bad, where it can turn dark, is that when my conscience is pricked, I feel this ongoing level of dread and anxiety and despair, and I'm ruminating on my sins, and I'm, I'm you know, tossing them to and fro in my mind. And, and let me just say this, what I'm not talking about here, I'm not talking about having a, a healthy pattern of confession, mourning our sin, lamenting our sin, confessing our sin, that is very biblical. What I'm talking about, for me at least, is my propensity to fixate on sin to not be able to let sin go. Now, I have to ask, what's going on in my heart at that level? Now, I think there's probably several things, right? Number one, there's probably some sort of chemical imbalance of serotonin. Medication is a great blessing, okay? Let me just say that, number one. Number two, I probably have experiences in my past that bear upon my immature conscience that I need to, to really grow in and understand But I think there's also something profoundly spiritual going on as well. When my mistakes and my sin so devastate me that it sends me to a point of despair, that should tell me something. That I have been looking to the law to do something for me that it was never designed to do. That I'm looking to the law for my justification. I'm looking to the law for my identity. I'm looking to the law for my worth, my assurance, and I'm pretty sure if you're a human being, you do this somewhere, somehow, some way as well. Which is when those, our mistakes and failures sort of collapse in on ourselves if we've been living by the law, 
then we are going to be absolutely crushed. But Jesus says, I have a, I have a better way for you, Christian. You're no longer married to the law. Guess what? You're married to me. I am your new husband. I am your new spouse. Entrust yourself to me. Guys, we, we've had a season, and, and you, I've commented on this a few times this year. It seems to me over the past year or two, we've had an inordinate amount of suffering in our church relative to the size, age, and all those things of our church. We've had many people pass away this season. Um, many spouses have lost their spouses. Many parents have lost their children. Many people have, have lost people who are dear to them. There, there, there's a family right now, and I just ask you to pray for them, Charles and Jan Wilson, just faithful saints. They sit on the front row here every week in the second service, and Charles has been put under, under hospice care, and um, he and Jan have been married 50-something years, and they are having to say goodbye as earthly spouses. And all of us are walking through or have walked through or will walk through similar sorts of seasons on what is the basis for their hope? Because that's the real question, right? What is the basis for their hope? Their basis for their hope ultimately, as much as they love each other, is not in the other person. It's ultimately in their husband, Jesus, guess what, who will never die. Church, you have a, if you know Jesus Christ, you have a bridegroom, a husband, who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, who will never abandon you, who will never fall asleep at the post. You, ha you have a husband that is not going to walk away from his responsibilities. Paul says it very clear. You are, you've been bound to Christ. He is your new bridegroom, and because of that, you can completely and totally entrust yourself to him. Paul calls this walking by the Spirit. I'm no longer trusting in the things of the world, the standards of the world, or, or even my ability to achieve the standards of God's righteousness, I'm no longer looking to those things to do something it can't do for me. The only thing that can do for me what I need to be done is my bridegroom died for me. He laid his life down. He was raised to the newness of life. And now he indwells me with his spirit and he will never abandon me or leave me. Church, do you, do you know that Savior? See, that, that, that's Paul's whole point here. Paul's whole, whole point is, 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 is if the law is dragging you down and that's what the law does, look to Jesus. If the law is causing you despair, don't, don't throw away the law. Turn to Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly for you. Because I think the Heidelberg Catechism states this beautifully. And I just pray that it will be just a, a real word for us as we study Romans chapter 7. Because Paul's going to take us down some dark roads next week. Some dark personal struggles. But let's be reminded of this church. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the Heidelberg Catechism answers it this way. Please hear this. That I am not my own, 
but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy, Assur Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Because what a beautiful word. What an amazing commentary on Romans chapter 7. What an amazing spouse and husband that Jesus offers himself up for for you. Let's pray.